This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Josh Levine, the host of Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen. Throughout the World Cup, we're going to bring you a podcast from our friends at the soccer magazine Howler. They'll have analysis from the games, news from outside the stadiums in Brazil, and reports from a writer embedded with the U.S. national team. I hope you enjoy this special podcast extra. And I'll now pass the mic to George Qureshi, the founder and editor of Howler. Take it away, George. Hello and welcome to Dummy, a twice-weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler magazine. My name is George Qureshi. I'm the editor of Howler. I'm in a tiny little studio in Miami. And usually joining me here is Danny Carbassian. This week he's still in a closet in South Carolina. Danny remains the only member of this podcast who have ever scored for Arsenal, and he now is a scout for the Gunners. Hey, Danny. How's it going, George? I'm, I'm fine. Is your closet smaller than my studio here that you've You've seen, uh, so you know. It's about the same size, to be honest. But there are more blankets and clothes in where you are. <laughs> exactly. You sort of nestle in. <laughs> Joining us from Bristol, England, not Connecticut, is David Goldblatt, the author of The Ball is Round and Fuji Ball Nation. David, one of our producers, Ryan, wrote an intro for you that described you uh, as having the mind of William Shakespeare and the haircut of Kyle Beckerman. Have you ever been described like that before? No, I haven't, but I'm flattered on both counts. Well, it's a lot to live up to. I mean, I think we can definitely say you have the accent of William Shakespeare. Well, I think more Ray Winston, according to uh, the man on Twitter. 
Well, if they ever figure out a reverse time, I'm sure they'll describe William Shakespeare as having the mind of David <laughs> Goldblatt. <laughs> You're too kind. We've got a great show coming up. We're going to talk about possibly the most shocking result in World Cup history. Of course, I'm talking about Brazil 1, Germany 7. We'll take a look at the reaction from Brazilian fans and talk about where this team, where this country go from here. We'll also break down the other semifinal between the Netherlands and Argentina. Look ahead to what should be a, a really a classic final, Argentina-Germany. Uh, we're also discussing concussions. That Javier Mascherano incident from two days ago was, to put it bluntly, a little scary. We'll talk about how FIFA could have handled it differently. We'll also sit down with Matt Negrin. Matt is a journalist spending time in Brazil. He published a piece on Sports Illustrated yesterday about uh, soccer teams in the Amazon, indigenous people playing soccer, the uh, challenges they face. It's a really fascinating read, something I totally did not expect. Uh, and it's it's really good. So you should stick around for that. Finally, we reached out to you, the listeners on Twitter, to ask you to send us the best World Cup poems you could think of. Uh, we've got a real zinger coming up at the end of the show. Very excited to play that for you. So plenty to talk about. I know Argentina, Netherlands was more recent, but we got to start with uh, Brazil, Germany. Okay. As everyone knows, Brazil was absolutely pummeled by Germany in the semifinal on Tuesday. Danny, was this a case of Brazil utterly collapsing, just a complete failure in their tactics and execution? Or was it the case of Germany just being an unstoppable force? Uh, or was it sort of a combination of the two? Yeah, I think it was a combination of the two. Uh, Brazil were woeful on the evening and Germany were absolutely flawless on the evening. Uh, two of the big things I think that stuck out were the fact that Germany took a really big advantage of Brazil's left side. Uh, Marcelo found himself kind of getting forward and out of position even when the team was down three or four nothing. Um, and guys like Muller, Ozil, Kadira, Lam, they all thrived when this was happening and they all got forward. And even the central guys started seeing how much joy the Germans were having down that right hand side and started, um, making little movements into the, into that right hand area. Another player who struggled throughout the night was David Luiz. And, uh, I think this was probably even more interesting because he was given the captain's armband on the night in, in the absence of Thiago Silva. And naturally, especially in a World Cup semifinal at this stage, you do look at your captain as the guy that's going to lead the team. And uh, if you looked at his at his heat map throughout the night, he looked like he was playing more of a a free role. You know, he did he did everything um, that that you wouldn't expect a, a center half to do. And uh, you know, the, the number one job of, of any center half is to defend and defend with all your life. And there were just multiple instances where you know you, you'd watch a goal and you'd be like, where was where was David Luiz? And um, in Thiago Silva's absence, they had to replace him with Dante, who was making his his World Cup debut at this point, and it was just a it was just a big big game to to have to come into, especially when your your partner in crime is kind of all over the shop, and and, and the Germans were just ruthless in everything they did, and and it resulted in a horrible scoreline for them. David, you had one of the most interesting takes that I've read about this game. Uh, you wrote about it for Al Jazeera. Uh, and you you likened Germany to a Champions League team, which, you know, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the vagaries of international soccer, European club soccer has surpassed uh, international soccer, sort of the gold standard of, of the game. And, and yet here you were likening a national team, which doesn't get to train together anywhere near as often to one of the, you know, a, a top tier elite club team. That's what it looked like to me. I mean, just the sort of the sheer quality in every position on the pitch. Uh, the touch, um, and just the amazing sort of telepathic networking, it seemed to me, between, between the players, um, suggested, you know, that kind of level of performance and such speed as well. I mean, it was just 
breathtaking to watch. Um, and, you know, I think probably about half of that team are playing for Bayern. So you've kind of got half a Champions League team anyway. And then in a sort of extraordinary sense of uh, solidarity amongst the team and just brains. I mean, you know, David Luiz's performance really was off the scale irresponsible. And um, I think this goes back, you know, the other half of what I wanted to say was, you know, Brazil... Um, not merely the team, but the coach, the nation, the media have been riding this wave of emotion and thinking that emotion is somehow going to be enough. If they love Neymar enough, if they weep enough over his loss, if they all wear a, a Neymar strength cap, you know, that that's going to do <laughs> it. And actually, you know, that sort of fist pump from Luis when he came on, rather than being an indicator of the sort of passion that was going to win the game, was actually a herald of the most chaotic, irresponsible, awful performance I have seen at this World Cup. And we haven't even mentioned the elbowing that was going on from David Luis and the vicious kick that he made as well. So I think that emotion thing has, you know, and it's also in Brazil... It is a society where most of the time emotion and passion rules over reason uh, and, and sort of, you know, balanced argument. And I think Brazilian football desperately needs a bit of reasoned argument now after this excess of passion, both in the kind of short term about, you know, how they just play with this squad, but in the longer term about how football is organised in um, Brazil, because the beautiful game, the great legacy of the 1960s and 1970s has been lost. Brazil have not played beautiful football for 30 years and domestically even less so. And they have been trading on this. We've all been trading on this and we simply can't go on with this nonsense any longer. And that could be you know, if something good is going to come out of this for Brazil, it seems to be, you know, let's take that energy, let's take the anger, take the emotion, but get organised, start making some change. David, you mentioned, you know, obviously, of course, Neymar was missing from the lineup, and he is one of the last remnants of that old Brazil, the, the beautiful Brazil, uh, the skillful Brazil. Brazil still produces a lot of brilliant players. I mean, there's no shortage of, you know, of and, and some really exceptional. And, you know, there are over a thousand Brazilians playing professional football outside of Brazil. So in a way, it's sort of supply in that regard is not the problem. You, you mentioned that there's a, a sort of a, a shortfall of of coaches who could even take over and that Scolari, uh, the current Brazil coach who won the World Cup with Brazil in 2002, uh you know he's he's put together a team that does not represent these brazilian ideals he's chosen a rougher a strategy of fouling basically yeah, strategic I mean, fouling and and you you wrote that against colombia um it was no wonder that a player like neymar was going to be uh kicked out of the game because that's the game brazil wanted to play absolutely someone was going to get hurt in that game it could have been rodriguez you know it turned out to be neymar and um you know, Scolari, we, of course, we remember him for winning the World Cup in 2002. But, you know, the roots of his coaching style are the 1990s at Grumio and Palmeiras, where the whole strategy of tactical fouling was, you know, was perfected. And a degree of kind of cynicism and um, roughhouse football was introduced. And there is in Brazil... 
you know, that kind of obsessive will to win at all costs, do whatever it takes, actually is the sort of dominant mentality rather than we must do something beautiful first. Danny, you, uh, one, I think one thing that we've seen here is the national styles, the definition of a country by the way it plays soccer are becoming less and less relevant. Um, you know, Jogo Benito is the Brazilian, you know, the beautiful, the beautiful game, uh, Dutch total football, which, which pioneered in the seventies. And actually, you know, when Ajax won the Champions League in the nineties, they, they were still playing a version of that. Italy is famous for catenaccio. Spanish tiki-taka seems to be, if not irrelevant, because it's it sort of informed some other nations' style of play, at least not, not all that dominant anymore. You know, has the fact that club soccer has eclipsed international soccer made these national designations irrelevant? Or are we seeing, you know, the natural ebb and flow of them, maybe Germany coming to the fore again? Yeah, I think it is the the natural ebb and flow. And, um, you know, for, for six years there, we were talking about how how Tiki Taka had essentially revolutionized the game and everything. And, and what Germany has done is, and we, and we mentioned this on an earlier uh, an earlier episode of this, was they've taken kind of the best bits of Tiki Taka and then, and then improved it even for the modern game. Germany, as we said earlier, they did everything right. And, and they, they looked at Brazil and said, in Fred, Brazil have a slow striker, who likely won't look to get him behind. And Fred was another one. We didn't mention him earlier, but he was another guy that was, you know, a very, a very non-factor in that game. The Germans were able to keep a very high line. And, and, and we mentioned in a, in a previous episode that the, the midfield battle was going to be one that was extremely important to win. And the Germans were just excellent. And, and David, David mentioned another thing. He said the, the Germans in the final third were very, I mean, they were, they were very sharp and everything was, um, everything was very coordinated. I, I don't think I've ever seen so many passes and combinations, uh, 10 yards out in a game. And, and that, that unselfish manner was, uh, a refreshing and B just a joy to watch. Um, I, you saw, you saw Mesodozel had several opportunities where he got a shot, pulled it back to Kadira, Kadira scores. It, it did look like one of those exercises teams play before a game where they cordon off like a, a, an area the size of the box and basically play keep away from each other. I mean, it, it was amazing. It was, yeah. And it's, there's, you do these things at the club level where on a daily basis you do these things where it's like, let's work on combination play and there's a hundred mannequins out on the pitch and there's no real, not that there's no real rhyme or reason to it. The the coach will say, "All right, here, let's let's work on getting the ball down the right and then bringing it to the left and then attacking, uh, combining around a mannequin and then scoring." And and honestly, that's what it looked like. It was like some of the passes almost seemed, um, you know, almost excessive, but they were efficient as well. And I think um, I think this style of play. I mean, Germany right now. I mean, putting seven goals up in a semifinal is is frightening. And, and as you said, with uh with Argentina going 120 minutes yesterday. Uh, this final is 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 going to be a very difficult game for them. So the last thing that I want to say about this is that last year when Brazil met Spain in the finals of the Confederations Cup, Brazil made Spain look really bad. I mean, they beat them three nothing. They you know Spain had been the most dominant national team in 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 the world for you know a good six seven years, and all of a sudden. Brazil just sort of seemed to know how to beat them. Uh, now, Germany has now done the same thing to Brazil. And Germany, you could say, has taken a lot of their cues from Spain. I mean, you talk about that close passing in the box, the really incredible skill that takes, the, the pressing, the sort of the tireless work and, and sort of groupthink. Uh, in this sense, groupthink is a good thing. I mean, it's incredible that, that Spain at its height and now Germany are, you know, these teams are able to coordinate their defense so well. And so Germany, I guess, 
really seems like a hybrid of these two things, a very direct, strong, fast style of play like Brazil used to beat Spain, and also the really close control dynamic passing that Spain used to just smother everybody else. I was just going to say the point you make about, you know, Germany absorbing the sort of Spanish style and refining it. I think that kind of helps answer your question about what has happened to these international, you know, these national styles of football is that we just live in a much more global networked world. I mean, we used to come to World Cups, you know, before satellite television. And we hadn't seen any Dutch or Brazilian football probably for the previous four years. And the networks of players and coaches and officials and agents was much, much more limited. So when good ideas and new inventions came up, you could hold on to it and nurture it and keep your kind of competitive advantage for longer. But now, you know... Everybody sees everybody all the time in minute detail. The moment someone comes up with something good, everybody's onto it, you know, as players and coaches move around. And I think that makes it, that means that um, it's so much harder to have distinctive national styles and for them to sort of solidify permanently before someone else comes along and changes it. Okay, I want to talk about the other semifinal, uh, Netherlands-Argentina. And before we get to anything else, we have to talk about Javier Mascherano. He's the key player for Argentina, in my opinion. Messi uh, being the other, uh, Di Maria being a third who's out. But Mascherano really has played unbelievably well in this tournament. He knocked heads with another player yesterday, early in the first half. He went off. He seemed very woozy. Uh, but he came back on. And he has to be said, he played a great game, but but he shouldn't really have been on the field. Everyone on Twitter was was really outraged that he would be allowed back on. I, I personally don't don't think so. And um, Taylor Twelman made a really good point yesterday at halftime saying FIFA should have kind of an independent guy on the sideline, an independent doctor who assesses the player um, instead of letting the emotion of A, the player, and B, the team doctor, especially when it's a player as, as important as Mascherano, let, letting them step back on the field. Um it, it it is sad because he goes on and makes arguably the play of the game as well when he stopped Robin right uh, right at the end he made a fantastic uh, you know tracking effort and then and then timed his tackle perfectly to prevent um, the best scoring chance in the game but as you said and this is not to dispute the people who think that he should not have been on the field because I I tend to agree with that assessment but that play on Robin also seemed to exhibit some some really great decision making. Uh, traits, you know, he he went to ground against a player who is known for falling over and winning penalty kicks, and he was extremely precise in his tackle. I mean, he it was an incredible play, and so I, I, I'm not a scientist. I don't know whether or not that indicates that he was or was not, you know, impaired, or if we can even tell based on that. But that was an incredible play. As as you say, it's a it's a difficult situation because with with head injuries, it's always as and you know if you if you've been watching the game in in the states with having Taylor Twellman on there with any head injury, you see him. He's he's the guy that comes in and says this is ridiculous. But but it is because at the moment when, once you shake off the initial impact, you're fine. But it's always a second impact that can cause big damage. And uh, it's just I feel like doctors and even the player the players are just you know at the moment you feel 
slightly better. You're like, let, let me get back on the pitch. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not worried about it, but uh, they really do need to have somebody that's kind of independent of the situation and not emotionally attached to make that decision. Right. And that's obviously in the player's best interest as well. David, though, if it takes six or seven minutes to evaluate a player, what, what is the solution here? How, how like as a, as a, in a, as a gameplay experience, how does, how do we, jive, you know, how do we make these two things jive? You got the players sitting out on the field, getting cold, the game stopping, you know, you can't have a temporary substitution. How does this, how does this work? Man, I don't know. This is like seriously technical medical questions. I think the question I would ask, <laughs> put back to you guys is what happens in other leagues and what happens in other sports? Because, you know, football, World Cup football is not the only place that people are getting concussions. I imagine in international rugby and certainly in NFL, there's plenty of concussion. What are those, what are those guys doing? So the NFL has a two-page check sheet, which we will post a link to on our website. But it seems to be, I mean, to me, it seems like a pretty thorough document. Uh, but it also <laughs> does say in, in large letters in a, in a colored box, uh, signs of concussion may be delayed. And so even if a player checks out, if they've had a bad head injury, it may not be apparent that they are impaired until until much later. So guys, on to the final. Uh, we have Argentina, Germany. It's, you know, this, this matchup has happened twice before, 1986 and 1990, back to back World Cups. Of course, that was West Germany. Argentina won the first one, West Germany won the second. This year, are these the two best teams in the cup? Do you think they both deserve to be in the final? And I guess the most important question, are you excited for it? I am really excited. I'm really excited. I think it is a fitting, fi a fitting final in the sense that Germany have clearly been the most exciting, compelling and interesting attacking team. And there's absolutely no question that they should be there. Um, and Argentina, although sometimes it does rather look like concrete setting, um, you know, have got an absolutely unimpeachable defensive record in this tournament. And given, given the squad that they've got, you know, how else, how else are you going to play it? It seems to me that they've, um, it's a reasonable take. And one of the great pleasures of, of football, it seems to me, is, you know, there is no one way in the end. You know, there's no one way, there's no right way. It all depends who's your, in your team and on the moment and so on. And so I think this is a great duel. And I expect, I don't expect Argentina to, you know, go out there and, uh, and attack. Um, the Germans are going to have to break them down. And it's going to be, I just think, sensationally interesting to see how they manage that. They've got, you know, they've got the people to do it, but how are they going to do it? That's that's just going to be tremendous. Well, pretty amazingly, they haven't gone behind in the entire tournament. They've never trailed. And can I, the other thing, the other great thing about this final is that if Brazil can't be in the final in terms of creating an atmosphere, um, having their, you know, their worst nightmare in the stadium is going to create an atmosphere. I saw um, a Brazilian journalist, Fernando Duarte, texted almost immediately on the final whistle of uh, the semi-final. This is a country of 200 million Germans. And, you know, when you've got to, you know, when you've got to, the host isn't there in the final, it can be a little flat. I mean, I thought, you know, South Africa, uh, in South Africa, um, the actual atmosphere in the stadium was, was a little flat. And I'm expecting this to be absolutely raucous. Well, Danny, how much will the difference in rest days affect the teams? Of course, uh, Germany has an extra day of rest and they had basically a practice game against the Brazilian college practice squad uh for their semi-final argentina's coming off a an overtime win uh, against the netherlands that was anything but a practice game 
Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be quite big. But once again, at the end of the day, it's a it's a ninety minute game and it's a World Cup final, so these guys are going to be more than up for it. And I'm excited because, as David said, Germany have been the best team uh, in the World Cup so far, uh, and then Argentina. It's exciting when you see the best players in the world get the chance to to be, you know, at the biggest stage in the world. So seeing Lionel Messi, who a lot of people have said he hasn't performed at the at the international level throughout his career, you know, seeing him get the chance to play in a World Cup final, especially in Brazil, and and have the the possibility of lifting the World Cup uh, in front of all those Brazilians will be actually quite um, quite interesting to see. But yeah, as you said, uh, every, everybody was speaking about going into this tournament, saying you know Argentina had all the firepower in the world, but their defense was a bit a bit shaky, and now they've gone they've gone the entire knockout stage without conceding a single goal. Um, and they've had four clean sheets uh, in this tournament so far. So it'll be really, it'll be really exciting just to see how you know what Germany has to do to break them down if they can break them down, and then what what Messi can do once he gets the ball. Okay, let's take another quick break. Next, we're going to talk to Matt Negrin about his experience spending time with uh, some people in the deep, deep, deep Amazon. Uh, they've formed a professional soccer team. It's really an amazing story. Uh, and we're going to talk about the growth of soccer in some of Brazil's less populated, harder-to-reach areas. Okay, now I'm joined by a freelance journalist in Brazil. His name is Matt Negrin, and he's in Rio de Janeiro, but he spent a lot of time in the Amazon rainforest researching and reporting and writing a story about indigenous soccer players up there in the middle of what we think of as the middle of nowhere. Uh, and it's really great. It came out on sportsillustrated.com today. Uh, Matt, welcome to Dummy. Thank you so much, George. So Matt, you have a really interesting project going on sort of above and beyond the Sports Illustrated story, uh, you, you're running a website that you, I think, just recently started called, called awayandhome.com, right? That's right. Yeah. And the idea was I pretty much quit my job as a journalist and I became a freelancer and I went away and I, I traveled the world. I went to Asia, Europe, South America, even some places in the U.S. to see a lot of these teams and a lot of these fans who love soccer uh, at home. So that was kind of where I got the name from. I thought I was being clever. But the the <laughs> idea is to show why people get so nuts about soccer. And the World Cup is kind of the best place to, to really see all that happen. Okay, so I would imagine that the, the place you wrote about in today's story is one of the, for you, one of the strangest places you visited. Can you tell us a little bit about that place? It was one of the funnest stories I've ever done. And when I, I, I kind of got word that this team existed from someone I knew in Brazil, but no one else, even in Brazil, had really heard about it. Basically, it's an Amazon tribe, uh, about 178 people in this tribe, in the state of Pará. And this is uh, very deep in the Amazon rainforest, uh, not near Manaus. Uh, Manaus is, is the city that is hosting one of the World Cup stadiums. A lot of people are going to Manaus for games. Uh, there's only four games there, but that city uh, got a, a big boost from, from the stadium there. This state, Pará, is arguably, and uh, not even arguably, they definitely are way more in love with soccer. And a lot of them felt snubbed that they didn't get a World Cup stadium. So in this state is a tribe that started playing indigenous professional soccer. They're the first indigenous team to play in a professional soccer league in Brazil. Uh, and that is not just an interesting fact. It's a huge benchmark because there are 20 million people who live in the Amazon. Hundreds of thousands of them are indigenous. And the Brazilian government and even mainstream Brazilians, just ordinary people, kind of overlook them. 
we in the U.S. might think oh, it's similar to our Native American situation. But I think in uh, in the U.S., the Native American culture is, is not really thriving so much. Um, it's kind of been relegated to these very sad reservations. Uh, they've, they've modernized for the most part. Here there are tribes that are still literally hunting boars, uh, carrying logs through a forest uh, as a sport, uh, rubbing berries on themselves as, as war paint. Uh, and now they're playing soccer with other professional teams in Brazil because they want to be heard. They want better rights, a, a whole list of things. Um, and that story to me seems like one of the coolest things I could do during the World Cup because no one else is going to be out there in this state. No one else is going to be hunting in the jungle with the chief of the tribe uh, at night, which I did, which is terrifying, and I'm never doing it again. Yeah, and no one. <laughs> so let me let me let me ask you about some of these things. Uh, you you paint some really amazing uh, scenes in this in this piece. One of which is about these these guys, this team training using the sport you said the most popular sport of their ancestors, which is carrying a chopped log uh, over like a half mile course through the forest. Uh, the, the women crush red berries and paint, paint their bodies, uh, the men's bodies with this. And just in addition to sort of carrying on a, a pretty amazing tradition, uh, you mentioned that opposing teams hear about this and they sort of, maybe there's a little bit of intimidation that goes on because they think, oh man, we're playing these guys who just come from a different, totally different background. That's absolutely correct. And some of the opponents that I talked to said, like, we've seen the videos on YouTube, uh, which are kind of viewed within <laughs> the state, not really outside. But they're like, we've seen the videos. We know what we're up against. And I tried to carry one of these logs. They're so heavy. They're like, I, I don't know, at least 100 pounds. And they told me that was the light version. Like, that's what they do <laughs> just just to show people how to do it. Like, it, it wasn't even close to what they can really carry. And it's so fascinating just to think 50 years ago, this tribe had not been discovered and they were living as they had for hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. They don't know how long. Discovered uh, by Europeans living in Brazil, yeah, right? Yeah, they were living by what uh, discovered by basically by white white Brazilians. So as early as like, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, they were using this log relay race as not just a training exercise. They, that was their sport. They competed against each other. They would also compete with bows and arrows. They would challenge each other to see who could shoot the farthest. Um, all these kind of like yeah, really fun you games. You mentioned you know? them sitting in a river, standing in a river, very still at 3 a.m. And if they move, they'll be bitten by eels. And that's part of yeah. their concentration that's training. Their, that's part of their training. Yeah. I mean, that's a, no other team in the world trains like this. And, <laughs> and that gives them a special, uh, they like to think, a special ability on, on the field. Totally. So uh, another thing that comes out in the story is the sense of discrimination that other non-native, I guess, Brazilians uh, exhibit. Uh, and one of the things that they say over and over in the story is, go back to the forest. What's the, I mean, I, it is it, when, they, when, they, when they told me about this, I was I was I was astonished. Like, I, of course, I understand racism. I understand prejudice, uh, derogatory name calling. But they kept telling me this story and in different examples that uh, whether they're at protests or whether they're simply at a game, they would hear from other fans. And they kept saying the same thing, like these uh, people who would approach them and just say, go play with your arrows, go hunt in the forest. What does the Amazon mean in the Brazilian psyche, like to, to the nation? Does it have a special place in, in the country's sort of folklore that it tells about itself? It depends where you ask. If you ask in the South, take Sao Paulo, the biggest city in Brazil. Sao Paulo would say the Amazon is another planet. And they, they have nothing in common. Uh, they acknowledge that the first people who lived in Brazil now live there. But 
many people in Sao Paulo would never go there. The, they don't want to. They don't want to experience that sort of thing. I've traveled more in Brazil than many Brazilians I've met who just go to Sao Paulo, to Rio, to Belo Horizonte. They would never go to the Amazon. If you ask other Brazilians uh, in the north who live in metropolises um, but are closer to the Amazon, they would probably say – we have a more of a connection. We think the rainforest kind of speaks to our culture. We enjoy closeness with nature. There are so many fruits here that are um, home to the Amazon that are exported to the rest of the country that would never make it out of Brazil. Like we don't even have them in the United States. And I think they, they appreciate that. But there is certainly a divide. And I, it's bigger than any divide, any cultural divide in the United States. And it was hard for me to wrap my head around. Brazil is a massive country. And the indigenous people who live in the Amazon, from all the places I've been, it's the most different place uh, in Brazil, for sure. So your story is about a professional team in Brazil made up mostly of indigenous Brazilians living in the in the rainforest. The photographs that accompany it are amazing. I really recommend that people go and take a look at it. And I think they should also follow you because you're you're doing such an interesting project. What's next for awayandhome.com? Um, Something for Howler, I, I hope. <laughs> I have a story cooking uh, about some protesters in Brasilia. They are kind of the other side of this World Cup uh, is just the massive spending that went into these stadiums. And it's kind of exemplified by the stadium in Brasilia, which was used for only seven games, will cost a billion dollars and will never be used again because there's no soccer team in the capital that could ever fill it. So I lived with some protesters for a week and wrote about that. That one's not out yet, but it will be. I mean, you are definitely the most interesting journalist I know of in Brazil right now, uh, <laughs> American you. journalist. Um, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, just my name, Matt Negrin, M-A-T-T-N-E-G-R-I-N. And Matt. the website is awayandhome.com. Yes, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Dummy. I appreciate it. Thanks, George. Enjoy the final. It's time for another quick break. And when we get back, the World Cup in poetic form. So not too long ago, we put out a call on Twitter for our listeners, and we asked you to send in your best World Cup poems. Turns out quite a few of you are budding soccer bards, so we want to thank everybody for sending in submissions. This is one that we fell in love with immediately, so here you go. Hey guys, my name is Valerie Hamra. I'm an editorial assistant at Prose Media, and I'm recording this from my lavish apartment in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And this is my poem. It's called Explanation Will Not Be Free. World Cup time is back again. The bars are all bombarded. I'm watching with a boozy friend whose boredom is uncharted. But no one's even scored, she cried, before the game has started. In her disdain, my problem lies. Within her veiled attacks, a glib view of soccer tries to bust through tired tracks. But soccer isn't all that, I say. Just look at these quick facts. 100 plus matches start with 8 batches, 11 a team, limitless memes, 32 nations on soccer vacations, 90 minutes of play, ole, 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 ole. For us it is, for you, for me, explanation, alas, will not be free. And that's my poem. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Okay, speaking of Twitter contests, we're going to put out another little call for suggestions for end of the World Cup prizes. We're going to award our own. I know they have the golden ball, the golden boot, the golden gloves. 
uh, in the World Cup. Uh, but we want stuff like best dive or best hair obviously goes to Rodrigo Palacios, right? Okay, well, you can send us your ideas at What a Howler. We're going to read some of the best ones in the next episode. Okay, we're almost out of time. But before we go, we're going to do our Tiki Taka segment where we each bring up our favorite thing from soccer culture or whatever from the last week or so. David, I know you have something you're very excited about. Okay, and we're going to play a little game here, guys. So Cambridge University Press have scoured the world's English language media and social media to find the top three words associated with each of the 32 squads. So I'm going to read you guys three words, and I want you to guess which team are we talking about. We're going to start with an easy one, okay? And the easy one is money strike powerful who's that uh, that's gotta be ghana right ghana correct how about this one uh slow vulnerable pessimism Ooh, there are a couple of good ones for that yeah. <laughs> i'm going i'm going to italy you got it danny one last one drab error mediocre spain Mm, right continent. Think really bad goalkeeping errors. Oh, Russia, yeah. <laughs> uh, Russia. Gotcha. Yeah. In one. <laughs> okay, so what did they say for the US? Uh, oh, I think you're going to like this, actually. For the US, it was determined, heroic, and courageous. <laughs> oh, so superstitious <laughs> didn't, didn't make it on there? <laughs> no, no, I'm fourth with white man with dreadlocks. <laughs> Okay, we'll have a link to that story on our show page. Uh, Danny, what do you have? That's really funny because about two weeks ago, David, you chose the one that I was going to choose. And uh, now that that's that was the one actually I was going to bring up. But luckily I have another one because I read an awesome article. Wright <laughs> um, uh, Thompson, uh, ESPN writer, um, I'm sure you guys saw this, but he wrote an article. He, he watched the game, the Brazil-Germany game in a favela in, um, in Brazil and basically documented – uh, the breakdown and the meltdown uh, from within the favela. And it is just one of the most, I mean, for me, it was one of the most captivating pieces of the World Cup because it really, right, does a really, really good job of just kind of defining what, what football means to, to these fans in Brazil. Uh, and as we mentioned, the guys that aren't able to go to the stadium and watch the game, the people that uh, are resigned to watching the game on a, you know, on a 20 inch screen that's pixelated because it's raining outside. Uh, I thought it was just a really, really uh, well-written piece that you guys should check out. Yeah, that really was a great piece. Okay, my Tiki Taka is uh, something we published on HowlerMagazine.com last week. Uh, I got a surprise on July 4th. Alexander Abnos, who has been checking in with us from Brazil, he's been down there covering the World Cup for USsoccer.com. He sent me an email and he said, hey, you know, I have recorded all four of the U.S. national anthems uh, that they played during the World Cup. And because the the actual tracks that they play, the music, uh, are all the same, he was able to link them up. And so he created this montage. And, and as he writes in the introduction to this little post on, on the website, he didn't know what he would end up with. He thought it might sound terrible. turns out it's actually really affecting and, and kind of oddly beautiful. Um, it's just all four times that U.S. fans sang the national anthem in the stadium. So you hear a lot of those American outlaws and the other travelers down there. And it's just a really neat kind of little art project that Alex made, totally unexpected, and we were able to publish it on uh, July 4th, which was pretty cool. And you should go, we're going to play a clip right now, but you should, uh, you should go hear the full thing on HowlerMagazine.com.
That does it for this episode of Dummy. I want to thank our guest, Matt Negrin. Thanks also to our panel, David Goldblatt and Danny Carbassian, for joining us all summer. Alexander Abnos for his reports every episode from inside the U.S. Men's National Team camp, where he was covering the tournament for ussoccer.com. Thanks to Slate, especially the guys at Hang Up and Listen. If you're hearing this podcast through our own feed, the Howler feed, you should really subscribe to Hang Up and Listen. It's a really great weekly sports podcast, and they have been so kind to to host us during the tournament, help, help us to expand our audience. Uh, Josh Levine, Mike Volo, and Andy Bowers have been just amazing. Most of all, thank you for listening. If you're not following us on Twitter, please do so. We are at What a Howler, same on Instagram. And if you want more World Cup stories, check out our radio documentary series. We tracked down some of the great soccer stories from all over the world, from El Salvador to American Samoa to right here in 1950s America. You can hear those at howlermagazine.com slash radio or in our podcast feed on iTunes. Also on howlermagazine.com, you can order the World Cup issue, which I know the World Cup is coming to an end, but there's a lot of really good stuff. And it, you know, like everything we do is is relatively evergreen. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to find team previews that aren't good anymore. It's It really takes a broader view of the World Cup than that. I hope you'll check it out. It's $15 for a single issue, $50 for a, a four-issue subscription, and shipping is free in the United States. The Howler Singers are led by Lindsay Elliott. They are members of the choral ensemble Ghostlight, and they made our theme tune. All the rest of the music is by Brian Kim. This podcast was produced by Matthew Nelson with help from Ryan Katniss, Kira Deppenbrock, and Malena Barajas. My name is George Qureshi, and I'll be back with you on Monday morning with all the rest of these dummies. Until then, enjoy the third place and final games of the World Cup. question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver i kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out chumba casino at chumbacasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. 
And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.